We're glad you guys uh, made it to be with us, especially if you're, if you're a guest of ours. We're glad you came to be with us this Christmas and celebrate Jesus and his birth. Didn't our, didn't our kids do a really good job this morning? Y'all say amen to that. I want to, yeah, they did awesome. And I'll tell you something, I think, I think it's, we got so many good kids that go to church here and it, it's uh, just like what Forrest was saying, it's so important what we instill in, in our youth and in our children because they are the next generation. And whatever we expect God to do uh, in our generation and, and through our lives, we want to expect even greater things through our kids. Amen. I, I, want, I, I want to remind some, some folks uh, or just tell some folks, if, if you're a, a children's church volunteer in any shape, form or fashion, I want to have just like a brief meeting with you. Uh, after service right here. So just stick around. Probably won't take five, ten minutes tops. But if you're a children's church or kids' church volunteer, I want to just have a brief meeting with you and share some things with you guys uh, that I'm excited about. So, um, yeah, once again, it's good to see everybody this morning. We're going to go ahead and jump into it. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty, I get pretty excited when we start talking about the fact that God became a little baby and was born in a womb. And God loved us so much that he sent his son to come. And he lived 33 or so years on this earth and died on the cross and took our punishment so that we could have eternal life. That's what the Christmas story is. That's what I want to read. Is it okay if we get in the Bible this morning, we read the Christmas story, we just talk a little bit about that together and let God speak to us. So if you want to, if you have your Bible, you can turn in uh, to Matthew uh, chapter 2. And I'm going to read some things throughout Matthew chapter 2. We'll start with verses 1 through 12 and then we will pray together. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I love the way Matthew writes his story because he keeps on uh, quoting Old Testament prophecy and saying everything that was happened was already foretold. This was done and it took place because it was written by the prophet in former times and God is now fulfilling his purposes and plans. And so in verse 7 it says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, he determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful this morning. And we do want to focus on the purpose of what Christmas is. And we want you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, to just settle that in our hearts this morning. That God, it's, it's, we're, we're thankful for gifts and for family and all of these things. But ultimately, Jesus, this is the time that we celebrate the fact that, God, you did not abandon us in our sin and in our brokenness. 
but you became a man. You became a little baby. The infinite one became finite just for a moment of time. And the very one God, you who held all things in the palm of your hand were held in the hands of your mother on that night. And so, Lord, we come to honor you this morning that you were born and you were born to die on a cross for us. And Lord Jesus, we're grateful for that. And we pray that this morning through your word, you would put this in our hearts, God, and you would change us by it. And you create faith in our hearts in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So the Christmas story, it's, it's a it's a wonderful story. It's an awesome story. And a lot of times when you think about Christmas, you know, it's everybody sitting around watching Santa Claus movies and Kevin trying to get his tarantula to eat people in Home Alone. And like that's what you start to think about during the Christmas season a lot of time. And, you know, that that's a part of what Forrest was talking about. It's like our tradition. It's our festivities and and everything is supposed to be very comfortable and nice. And it's about gumdrops and having fun and family and all that. And that's true. There's 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 a nice reality to that. But really, you got to understand that Christmas from the very beginning is very messy. It's very chaotic. Sometimes it's a little bit disturbing. And I'm going to read some things in Scripture. When you look at the very first Christmas, it really didn't look like that great of a time to a large degree, but somewhere in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the sin, there was a glimmer of hope through a newborn baby that was born in an obscure place. And only a few handful of people even realized what was fully going on and taking place in their midst. But see, the first Christmas, even like our Christmas is now, they're very messy and, and, and sometimes it's very complicated. See, uh, even when you think about it, I, I get to thinking about the Christmas story, and, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but God had eternity to plan everything, didn't he? He, could, he? he had everything in motion. He had everything planned. He comes and he tells Mary, Mary, you're highly favored. Guess what? You're going to have a baby outside of wedlock. People are going to shame you. They're going to ridicule you because you're pregnant and you're not even married. And not only that, but when you have this baby, I'm going to make you all go back to Bethlehem to be taxed, and you're going to get on the donkey and ride a donkey for 90 miles in your pregnancy. And if that doesn't top it all, after God has eternity to plan this out, He doesn't even book hotel reservations for them. You know what I'm saying? He, they get into Bethlehem and they're looking for a place in the inn and it says that there was no room for them in the inn. And I would be thinking, God, if you're going to bring your baby, the Savior of the world, through me, surely, surely to you, you would have at least brought me some hotel reservations so we could have this thing peacefully. But no, he didn't have that. But let me tell you something. It was all a part of God's plan from the very beginning. There is not one detail of our lives, even in the midst of the greatest chaos, the greatest sin, the greatest darkness, God's plan is still reigning supreme. Can you say amen to that? He still has purposes. You know, we were reading a, a devotional together with some of my guys, and we were reading this Advent plan, and I read something very interesting. It said specifically that there are about 108 prophecies in Scripture in the Old Testament written hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years before Christ's birth, and they were written 108 prophecies that are specific to Jesus being born. And there was a, a man named Peter Stoner who was a mathematics professor in 1958, and he, he he did some studying and some research and he came to the conclusion that if only eight of the 108 prophecies were to come to pass, the odds of that taking place would have been one in 100 quadrillion. And that right there just staggers the imagination because you're talking about prophecies. If you read in what we just read, there are actually on Jesus's birth certificate, he's got four cities. He's got four cities on Jesus' birth certificate. And what we're going to read is that, yes, he was born in Bethlehem, but it also prophesies that even though he was born in Bethlehem, he would be raised in Nazareth. 
And not only that, it prophesies that for a season he would have to flee to Egypt and come back out of Egypt. And there's a prophecy that says there would be weeping in, in his birth in a place called Ramah. And all four of those cities, those exact same things happened. Prophesied hundreds of years before his birth. So we're talking about one of the greatest miracles, maybe the greatest miracle to ever happen on the face of the earth. Maybe right in line there with the resurrection that God himself becomes a man, is born, but God already, he, he's, he's like calling his shots. When God gives a prophecy, it's as if he's calling his shots beforehand just to demonstrate and show to you I'm in control and what I say is ultimately going to come to pass. It'd be like playing basketball over here in the gym and calling my shot and saying, you know what, boys, I'm going to shoot this. It's going to go out the door, bounce off of Wendy's. It's going to come back, hit Fred's truck over there, come back in the door, and then go in the basket. That's the kind of shots that God's calling. It's intense. It is, it is very, very specific, very detailed in what he's saying, but he's trying to demonstrate that ultimately his plan is going to happen. But here's what I like about God when he fulfills his promises. When God is fulfilling his promises, most of the time, it doesn't look like those promises are actually going to come to pass. It looks like everything is against those promises. But God has foresight. He has foreknowledge. He sees the enemy's strategies. He sees the enemy's plans. He sees the obstruction that is in your way. He sees all of these things and he knows that they're coming and he can plan in the midst of the darkness. I don't know about you, but that gives me comfort because I know that even in difficult times, God has already foreseen this thing and there is nothing that he will allow to happen to me. That which the enemy means for good God, or bad, God is going to ultimately turn it for my good. Because there's a lot of bad that's going on in the Christmas story if you actually start to read it. And see, God is fulfilling these promises and Christmas, he's bringing Christmas about, the true Christmas. And in the midst of this, there is somebody at work behind the scenes trying to thwart it the entire time. In that particular time, we just read Herod, right? Herod was talking to the wise men. He said, oh, y'all got that prophecy about Bethlehem, right? He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, I see. He said, I tell you what, you go find the child, you come back, you bring word to me that I may worship him also. Herod's not interested in worshiping this baby Jesus. He's interested in killing this baby Jesus because he, he is influenced by Satan himself because Satan throughout the history of time has been wanting to bring an end to Christmas. Somebody amen me on that. Right now, even in America, he wants to bring an end to Christmas. He wants to stop Christ from fulfilling what God sends him to do. And even though he, he, somehow he believes that he can do it, ultimately God causes him to just become a pawn in his plans and in his ultimate purposes. And the first point, I got, I got three points this morning and they're all about a paragraph long. So congratulations, it's going to be a good morning. Number one, it says Christmas teaches us that in an evil, broken and chaotic world, God will still fulfill his plans and purposes. Christmas teaches us that in an evil, broken, and chaotic world, God will still fulfill His plans and purposes. It will never get so crazy that God is not going to work things out. He always will because He has a plan that's greater than the enemy's plan. And see, here's a portion of Scripture that a lot of people don't read on Christmas morning, so to speak, but I'm going to read it. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, we'll continue the story. Uh, it says, Now when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. 
When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And you're thinking, Clay, why would you read this on Christmas morning? We're trying to be jolly. We're trying to hang up under mistletoe and just eat gumdrops. And you know, like, like last week, we're just trying to be happy. And this is, this is, this is a dev devastating portion of Scripture because you start to see that in the midst of this, there's a lunatic that's literally trying to kill the Christmas promise. Herod was the original Grinch. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like Grinch comes from this guy. He, he's the guy that is trying to bring an end to Christmas. And his plan is a very simple plan. It's the death of Jesus. It's the end of Christmas. What you got to understand about Herod is that he was the king of Israel. And that's what he called himself. He's called himself the king of the Jews. Now, he was an Edomite, but he married a Jewish woman because he wanted to be called the king of the Jews. And he called himself that. Now, if you remember, what ends up happening is at the end of Jesus's life, they write king of the Jews in three different languages over his head. And that was in, in opposition against Herod for, for, for what he, he was calling himself. And, and so those things happen. But here's what you got to understand about Herod. When he came in, he was doing all kinds of different stuff. He, was, he rebuilt a temple. He was, he was, he was creating uh, air conditioning that they didn't have back in those times. But this man was so crazy that he butchered his two sons in cold blood. Josephus teaches this in history. That he had two sons through his Jewish wife. And these two sons, as they got older, he assumed that in his mind somehow they wanted his throne and they wanted him to die a little bit earlier. So you know what he did? He killed his two sons. Now, if that's not bad enough and that's not wicked enough, later on down the road from that, he begins to think that somehow his wife is trying to usurp his authority. So he has his wife killed and he has his wife, his wife's uh, brother killed and then he has his mother-in-law killed. And there was, a, there was a saying that went about in the time that said, you know what, it would be safer to be Herod's pig than to be his child or his family member. Because he was so wicked and so messed up. So when you think about the fact that this man actually issues an edict to have all of the children in Bethlehem under two years of, old, uh, two years of age and, and younger killed, it's really not that big of a, of a surprise because this man is crazy, he's a lunatic, and he does not want to share his throne with anybody. He is not a fan of the prophecies that we just read. They read those prophecies. The people of Israel are waiting on this king, on this savior, and all of a sudden some wise men understand based on scripture they're reading the scriptures they see the stars aligning in the heavens and they say it is time for the Messiah to be born and they travel to find this Messiah and God shows them through a star in the sky that this Messiah is going to be born and when Herod sees it man he is not happy about it he's not happy about it but you got to understand this that Herod is not the first one to try to stop Christmas it all begins in the Garden of Eden in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning God creates Adam and he creates Eve Adam's name in the Hebrew means human. Eve's name in the Hebrew means life. They are a picture of all of human life. And just like us, what we are, we are humans. We, are, we live in this human life. 
and we're frail and we're broken. But see, we were created for communion with God. And that's what they had. Adam and Eve had communion with God. They walked with him in the garden in the cool of the day, in the spirit. They had communion with him. They had relationship with him. There, up to that point, there was no sin. They were reflecting the love and the goodness of God. But there was a serpent that comes in representing Satan, and he feeds them a lie that says, look, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can become as God's knowing good and evil. In other words, you can decide for yourself what is good. You can decide for yourself what is evil, and you can be your own God. See, that's what Herod was doing with his life. He had become his own God. He decided who got to live. He decided who got to die. And ultimately, it was about him maintaining himself as king. And a lot of people, I'm telling you, in our own lives, we do that same thing. Maybe we can't be king, but ultimately, sometimes we act as if we are. We center it all upon ourselves. We try to remain in control. We won't surrender our lives to the Lord. We hold on to things that we know are detrimental to our life because we try to be in control of our lives the same way that Herod was in control of, of, of his life. So Adam and Eve, they sinned. They, they took the bait, so to speak. They believed the lie and sin entered in. Death entered in. Sickness and disease entered in. All of this pain and torment entered in. And we know based on Scripture and what Jesus did that sickness and disease was never God's plan. That's why when Jesus shows up on the scene, He heals the sick. Death was not God's original plan because when He raises up on the scene, Jesus raises the dead and Himself is raised from the dead on the third day to demonstrate that the last enemy of God that shall be destroyed, according to 1 Corinthians, is death. Amen. So he's saying, this was not my plan, guys. This is not what I wanted. And then we say, well, God, why did you let it happen then? And he answers, because I am love and love must be a choice. I cannot make you do anything. Herod will try to make you worship him because he's an earthly king. But I'm a heavenly king and I will not force you to worship me. That's why it's so beautiful and it's why God inhabits the praises of his people because he loves it when we come in here and by a free will choice choose to sing and throw up our hands. We don't have to. We could have stayed at the house. We could have remained in our seats. We could have kept our hands in our pockets. But out of a choice, out of love, we say, Jesus, I love you and I'm not sure how to express that. But based on what I see in scripture, it says lift up holy hands and that's what I'm going to do. And he loves it because it's a love choice. He gave us a choice in the beginning and we missed it. We made wrong choices. And because of wrong choices, sin enters in. Death enters in. Not God's plan. But see, he's coming to fix those things. He's coming to fix those things through Christ. But what you got to understand is once Satan did this and sin entered into the world and all of these things were broken, they tried to clothe themselves. It says that they were ashamed. They were naked and ashamed and they, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord the same way that we often do. Some of you all, you come here this morning and you're dealing with different struggles in your life. And especially in a place like Clay County, it's a very religious area. People won't come to church. They often say, well, I need to get my life in order before I go to church. So let me tell you something. Ain't nobody in here got their life in order. We don't come to Jesus because we have our life in order. We come to Jesus because we don't. And you need to understand that first and foremost because there's nobody that's got it together. We are all in need of this Savior that we're speaking of. 
And some of you, you got a lot of different things. And what you're doing is you're hiding yourself from the presence of the Lord ashamed. And God is coming to you saying, where are you? I never wanted you to be distant from me. I know you've got some messy things in your life. But see, they were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. In other words, they were just trying to by their own works, by their own goodness. This is why when you talk to people about the Lord, they're like, well, you know, at the end, I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. It's not about you being a good person. It's about Jesus being the only good person and him taking your place on the cross. He took your place on the cross. And so it's, it's, it's not about that. We can't cover our sin. God shows up and says, look, y'all need to take them fig leaves off. And what he does is he sacrifices a lamb and he puts, he puts animals' tunics over them. And he's basically typifying, even from the beginning, that the way that your sin is going to be dealt with is not by you being a good person. It's going to be dealt with by my son whom I will send and he will be the sacrificial lamb and his blood will cleanse you from your sin and he will change your heart and he will make you a new creation. He's pointing that out from the very beginning. But see, I want you to understand that when this happens, God then begins to institute the consequences of our sin and how that death is going to enter into the world and, and all of these things are going to happen because of our choices. And in Genesis 3.15, the first word of prophecy is actually God prophesying to the devil. I love what he says. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Basically, there's going to be hatred between you and the woman. I don't know about you all, but I am not a big fan of the devil. He, and guess what? He's not a big fan of me either. It's mutual. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I love that. He's basically prophesying to him, say, hey, Satan, that woman over there is going to have a baby. And when she has a baby, he's going to come. And yeah, you're going to attack him. But the only thing you're going to do is bruise his heel. And ultimately, he's going to crush your head. And yes, you can clap at that. Amen. That's worth clapping over. But see, the Christmas story is hidden in this because look at what it says. It says her seed. Now, I don't know if you know about this or not. This is an anatomy lesson or a biology lesson, but the woman doesn't have seed. The seed comes from the man and a woman has an egg. But what he is speaking to right here out of the very beginning in Genesis 3 is the virgin conception. He's speaking about the fact that it is going to be a man that comes and saves the world, but this man is going to be God because his blood is not going to be from man, but his blood is going to be from God. He's already speaking about the miraculous conception. But what you have to understand is that here's, if Satan hears this prophecy, I don't know about you, but if, if some guy that came up and had power, let's just say, I don't know, let's just say the President of the United States comes up to me and says, you know what, buddy, you better get ready because I'm about to crush your head. I'd be like, man, I got to figure out a way to make sure this guy don't kill me. You know, I'd be, I'd be trying to figure out a strategy to not get my head crushed. And so Satan immediately begins to figure out, man, how am I going to keep this from happening? And so what ends up happening is he begins throughout history, you see it over and over again, of him trying to stop Christmas from happening, trying to stop the seed of the woman from crushing his head. And so what does he do? He sees the first, Eve has two boys, Cain and Abel. Abel brings the lamb as a sacrifice to God, which is a picture of him saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I can only bring the sacrifice of the lamb, Jesus Christ, to you. And therefore God put favor on his life. But Cain, on the other hand, brought the, the work of his hands, the produce of the ground, which is basically saying, I'm not a sinner. Here's my good works. Let me give that to you. And God rejected his offering. And what 
Satan saw was that Cain was rejected by God in that sense, but Abel was favored. So what does he do? He begins to stir Cain up. He says, you need to kill your brother Abel because he thinks that Abel is the one that ultimately is going to crush his head. So he has Abel killed in that sense. You go down further in history, and here's, what, here's the thing, though. God is all-knowing. God knew that Abel was not the one. He was not the promised Messiah. And Satan does not know those things. You need to put your life in the hands of the one who knows all things. We are very limited in our knowledge and our scope of understanding. That's why the scripture says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. You have no idea why you're going through the things you're going through. We don't know why a lot of these things happens, but God does. And he's not going to let anything happen outside of ultimately what he will bring to pass. So his will will happen in this earth. But Satan says, I ain't going to give up. Moses comes and there's actually a prophecy if you read in Josephus that, that in Egypt at that, that time there was a prophecy when they were enslaved in Egypt that Israel was going to raise up a deliverer. And Pharaoh hears this prophecy and Pharaoh says, you know what, I'm going to do the same thing. Let's kill all the boys under two years old, put them out in the Nile River and turn them loose. And they did put them out in the Nile River, but one, Pharaoh's daughter looks and draws out Moses. That's why his name was Moses. And he comes in and delivers Israel. And and Satan is still scared to death. I don't know. I can't stop it. I can't stop this thing from happening. What's going on? Can you imagine the rage in, this, in Satan while this is going on? And then he realizes, okay, now the prophecy has changed. This king is going to come out of the line of David. So let me try to kill David. He brought Saul out to try to kill David. And then he tried to cor corrupt David's line and the kings became wicked. And then you see this happening all the time until finally you come right at the end, and he knows, man, that the clock is running out because he knows the Messiah is coming soon, and he stirs Herod up to kill all of these babies. And he was trying to bring an end to Christmas. In Revelation chapter 12, let's read this right quick. I want you to understand this. This is not, this is not like a Merry Christmas type of scripture, but it's a Christmas scripture. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, and John, John is actually talking about what the Magi would have seen when they looked into the stars because they knew how to read the stars. And he says, there was a great sign that appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Next verse. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. See that? Next verse. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. In verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And throughout history, you continue to see that what, what Satan, is, his plan, his plan was to stop Christmas from happening, but he couldn't. So now he doesn't just persecute Jesus because that has already happened to him, but now he is persecuting the church so that Christmas does not happen in your heart. So that you don't allow Jesus to use your life. So that you don't surrender to the fact that he is king, that he has been sent to rule this world, this, all nations with a rod of iron. And he will. He will come back and he will restore authority in this earth. He will set all things right. He will restore peace. There will be no more weeping, no more tears, no more sorrow. And those who have followed him in this life will rule and reign with him forever. Amen. And this is the prophecy that, that, that comes over and over again. You read those, those scriptures, you're like, hey, Merry Christmas, y'all. 
There's a great fiery red dragon that's looking to consume the child. Merry Christmas. This is a good word. Verse 19 in Matthew chapter 2 says, Now when Herod was dead, remember they had went to Egypt. Herod had killed thousands of baby boys. There was great weeping and mourning during this Christmas season. And in verse 19 it says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So you see four prophecies fulfilled just in the locations that he would be throughout his life. Isn't that amazing? God already had it planned hundreds of years before. And what you, what you end up finding, number two in your, in your notes, here's what I want you to understand, is that Christmas teaches us that the devil used death as a tool to try to bring an end to Christmas, but God used Christmas as a tool to bring an end to death. Amen. The devil tried to use death. He tried to kill Jesus. He tried to wipe him out in any way that he could. He tried to use death to bring an end to Christmas, but instead God used Christmas, the, the, the Savior of the world born as a baby, to ultimately die on a cross, be raised from the dead, and bring an end to death. And that's God's plan. That's how He begins to work things together. That's the mystery of Christmas, that the infinite one became finite. The one that, was, that, that held all things in His hands, created all things, was for a moment held in the hands of His mother. Completely helpless in a sense. Under the care and the protection of His mother and of God His Father. And the humility that God showed in demonstrating that in coming to earth. And here's what you've got to understand, that the reason Jesus came to the earth is because He is the true Lamb of God. He is the final sacrifice. He's the real payment. Jesus came to die for our sins. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that He shall come and they shall call His name Jesus, which means salvation, because He shall save His people from their sins. Now, if you look at this in Luke chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, see, Jesus came and God was sending a Savior. God was not giving, a, He was not sending a lawgiver. He was not sending a judge. He was sending a Savior to a broken and fallen world. And that's why the angels came to the shepherds in the middle of, of a field. And in Luke 2, 11 and 12, it says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David, what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And notice what he says here. This is crazy. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, why was this a sign? What does he mean, this will be a sign to you? Now, I'll tell you, it was a sign for a specific reason. Because these shepherds, what you got to understand is that in Bethlehem at that time, there, there were mangers everywhere. It was that kind of a place. They raised livestock. They had animals everywhere. There were mangers everywhere. So if the angel comes and says, hey, he's going to be in a manger. Yeah, you're like, which one out of all these thousands down here? Well, I mean, give us some specifics, angels. You know, I mean, that's what they would be. But they're saying this will be a sign to you. He will be in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, let's look at a couple of, 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 of verses of prophecy. Now, we already read one, but in Micah 5, 2, let's read it once again. 
It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. 700 years before Jesus' birth, God gives the specific city that He's going to be born in. But just one chapter earlier, there's a different prophecy. And here's what it says in Micah 4.8. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come. So He doesn't just give a specific city. He gives a specific place in the city of where the birth is going to happen. And He says it's at the tower of the flock. Now, the tower of the flock in the Hebrew was Migdali Dare, and, and, and what it meant was this. Those shepherds in Bethlehem, they would raise lambs, they would raise sheep, and they took care of them. Obviously, that's what shepherds do. They take care of sheep. But see, in the sacrificial system in Israel, what they had to do, there were special shepherds that when they had a lamb that was born and they saw that this lamb was without spot and without blemish, they would take it to a place called the Tower of the Flock and they would wrap it in swaddling clothes because they wanted to protect it from getting any blemishes. Why? Because those lambs would be the sacrificial lambs because they would have to be checked by the priests and if it had no blemish and it had no spot, they would offer it on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. And those shepherds knew that when this man was going to be born, he said, this will be a sign to you. They're going to put him in a manger and not just any manger. It's going to be down there at the tower of the flock where they actually keep lambs that are without spot and without blem blemish and wrap them in swaddling clothes. In other words, shepherds, you know how y'all raise them lambs that are without spot and without blemish? They're actually pointing to the true lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. And he is without sin, without spot and without blemish. And it will be a sign to you because when you go down there, they're going to have him wrapped in swaddling clothes because he is the lamb of God that's going to take away your sins. And they knew that. They knew that because they understood what was going on. The angel said, this will be a sign to you boys. You guys know exactly where he's going to be born. He's going to be in swaddling clothes. Go check it out. He'll be down there because he is the new payment. He is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. You all got to understand this morning that Jesus came to take your sins on the cross to make a payment so that you could have eternal life, that you'd never be separated from God again, but that you would have eternal life and that you could put your faith in him. You could turn from your sins and be set free. See, but Jesus's blood, we're not talking about, we are no longer saved by animal's blood. God knew that in the end, he, didn't, he wasn't interested in animals. Animal's blood. He was trying to point us to a greater relationship with him and he was walking us through that and Jesus came to be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And we're not redeemed with the blood of bulls and goats, but we're redeemed with divine blood. And in, in, in Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This, this virgin birth is important. Why? Why is it important that, it, it, that it's a virgin birth? Because we know that every single one of us are under the curse. When our children are born, our children sadly are born in sin. That's what scripture teaches, that we all have a sinful nature. We all need redemption. We all need salvation. But Jesus came and he was without sin. Now what medical science actually teaches is that a child gets none of its blood from the mother. The child gets all of its blood from the father. So 
Mary and Joseph were both of the lineage of David, but if it had been Joseph's child, this child would have been born with sin. And that's why God had to conceive the virgin birth in Mary's womb and his blood was divine blood. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, it wasn't just human blood. It was divine blood. It was holy blood, pure, undefiled, without spot, without blemish, that was being shed as if he had broken every law that was ever been given. He took our punishment. He took our shame. He took our sin and he let it die on the cross. And that's what he come to do. He came to bring that salvation into our lives. And Matthew 2, 2, it says that they cried out and they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You know, every king is born a prince, but he was born a king. He was not just a prince because in his blood was divine royal blood. Here's what, in the, in the, in the first question in the Old Testament, this is interesting. In Genesis 3, the very first question in the Old Testament is God shows up after they had sinned and he says to Adam and Eve, where are you? It's not that God didn't know where they were, but you have to, you have to see this, that they were lost. That's why he's saying, where are you? You don't realize where you're at. You've separated yourself from me. Why is it that you've gotten away from a relationship with me? Where are you? See, he's speaking about the lostness of man, the fact that we are lost without God. But do you know what the first question is in the New Testament? The first question in the New Testament is in Matthew 2, 2, when they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Jesus is the answer to our lostness. You want to know where you're at? I know you probably can't figure it out, but Jesus will show you exactly where you're at and he'll show you exactly where you're headed. Jesus is the answer to your lostness. When you find Jesus, you find yourself. And when you find Jesus, you find eternal life. God has always had a plan, but it's in the middle of the chaos of broken humanity and the evil work of Satan that he's bringing this plan to pass. And so, you know, it's, it's Christmas, like I said, it's, it's, it's chaotic. Sometimes it's difficult, just like what Forrest was saying. It's not always perfect, but that's how the original Christmas was, right? And we see that in the midst of this darkness, sometimes we like to, sometimes I think what we like to do as, as, as human beings is we like to escape from the hardship. So we try to find ways to forget the fact that we're dealing with pain or we're dealing with suffering. And we try to put all of our hope into this world in particular. And we hope that God will just make it really good for this world. But see, God has not promised us that everything will be perfect in this life. Do you guys realize that? He's not given us that promise. He's not given us that promise that everything's going to be healed and everything is going to be better, better in this life. He gives us the promise of a life to come, of a world to come, of a hope to come, of eternal life. And so we begin to move beyond this. But see, the thing about it is, is that death is the reason that there ever was a Christmas. When we think about death, man, it's, it's the end. It crushes us. It destroys us. It is one of the most painful things that we can suffer when we experience death. But it is the reason that there ever was a Christmas in the beginning. And see, Herod is a lot like us. Herod was trying to cling to his life, cling to his throne, let nobody else have it. And the more that he tried to hold on, guess what? Death ultimately pried it from his grip. Jesus, on the other hand, left his throne. Didn't try to cling to it. He left it. He became a man, took on flesh, was a baby, lived in this world, laid down his rights and privileges as being equal with God and took on flesh, became a servant, became humble and obedient unto the death of the cross and died in our place. And number three, my last point, 
is that Christmas teaches us. I want you to really get this one. Christmas teaches us that if our treasure is in this world, then death will take it from us. But if our treasure is truly Jesus and our treasure is in heaven, then death takes us to our treasure. If our treasure is in this world, then death takes us from our treasure. But if our treasure is Jesus and our treasure is in heaven, then death takes us to our treasure. And death is something that when it comes, it's so brutal. But like I said, death is the reason that there ever was a Christmas. The scripture says that the wages of sin is death. Every human being will face death and we experience it and it's the most painful thing. And what is so great about believing in Jesus of all other religions is that we know, one, we believe that this one is the true one, but we believe it for a reason. Ours is the only one that has a leader and a God that has been raised from the dead and has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave and said there's a life to come and I'm going to return and I'm going to raise you up and you're going to have eternal life. And the ones that have gone on before you the ones that have gone on before you that you feel like you've lost, you have not lost them. This life is but a vapor. There's about 70 years that you've got here and you've got to live it for one reason and that is to glorify God in the earth because you've got millions upon millions of years to live with Him in peace in the future. There may not be much peace for you in this life. Ultimately, life is chaotic, but you have an inner peace from Jesus, a peace that this world cannot give that pushes you through death, that pushes you through chaos, that pushes you through darkness, knowing that, guess what? I'm not living for this world. My reward is not in this world. My reward is in the world to come. And Jesus comes and is born and He lives a life and that's what He demonstrates to us. That we're looking to something beyond. He entered into a broken, chaotic, and dark world to bring salvation and to say, guys, I'm setting things right. I'm setting things right. I know it's a mess. I know it's a mess, and it's not what my father wanted to happen. That's why I'm here. He gave y'all free will, and you blew it. You know, the Christmas story is not a compliment. He's not, he's not coming down and saying, man, y'all did a pretty good job. No, he's not saying that. He is, he's coming down and saying, you cannot save yourself. You cannot do it. You cannot live a good enough life. You'll never be good enough. You're not going to be able to, to muster up the strength to live a good enough life to save yourself. You have to, re you have to release control. Just like Harriet, some of y'all, you're trying to cling on to your life. You're holding on to secret sins. You're holding on to things. You, you don't want to let it go. You want to be the ruler of your life. You want to decide what's good for you. You want to decide what's evil for you. And Jesus is saying, you know what? That is, that's killing you. It's wearing you out. Why don't you just let it go? Why don't you just let it go? Just let go, and when you let go of your throne, you're going to find out that Jesus has room for you beside Him on His throne. And you can rule and reign with Him. And you can live in eternal peace. And you can turn from sin, and He can cleanse you and wash you in His blood. And that's the choice that we have. And for a lot of us, I think, I think we just need that fresh surrender. Even as many of us are Christians here this morning, but I promise you, we can end up being just like Herod, can't we? We can end up trying to be in control of everything, trying to make things happen. And sometimes you just can't. You just got to re-surrender it all to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm not, I can't do this anymore. I need salvation. I need you to save me.
if you don't know him. And for those of us who do, Lord, remind me of what you've done. Remind me of that cleansing blood. Remind me that I can't be in control of my life. I got to give you control. I got to re-surrender this to you. Don't you bow your heads with me for a minute. Let's pray together. I was talking with a guy just the other day and he said, you know, when we when we prayed at the end of that service one time, we all prayed together and we just prayed a prayer of salvation. He said, he said it felt like just this burden, this weight was lifted up off of me. And see, that's what I believe. I don't, I don't believe that there's any real way, like there's no formula for salvation except for the fact that you believe in what I just told you, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that he came into this earth, that he was God in the flesh, and that he went to the cross because of your sin and for your salvation. And when his blood was shed, he said, if you will believe in me with your heart that I was raised from the dead, and you will confess with your mouth that I am Lord, he said, then you shall be saved, and I'll do something in your heart. And so right now, just, just as an act of faith, with every head bowed, every eye, every eye closed, that if you're here this morning, you say, I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to just pray and believe God to do something in my heart. I can't live like this anymore. I've got to let go. I've got to make Jesus Lord in my life. Will you lift your hand right now? Just let me see it. Just as an act of faith, just lift it up. Anybody else? I got a hand up. Is there anybody else? Now for the rest of us, well, I want us to all pray together. But for the rest of us, I want us to think about in our lives the things that we've held on to that we just need to let go of and like Forrest was saying at the beginning of service to get refocused on our purpose what is our purpose God gives us families man he gives us uh, jobs he takes care of us and we have so many things going on in this life but there are moments where we have to stop and consider what is all this for it's to glorify Jesus. It's to live for Him. It's to know God and have a relationship with Him. This is eternal life that you know Him. So let's pray. Father, we, we just come to You right now. And we acknowledge Your power and Your glory. And we are grateful, Lord, for the fact that You loved us so much that You did not abandon us in our sin. You did not abandon us in our pain. You did not abandon us in our brokenness. But You came right into the midst of our brokenness and in our pain. And Lord, You were born in an obscure place, but there was sign after sign pointing to the fact that You were the one true Messiah. And everything that was prophesied about You, Jesus, it came to pass. And therefore, we have assurance and we have faith that when we confess You as Lord and we believe in the power of Your blood and we speak that out of our mouth, that there is something that happens in our hearts. And so I just want You to say that to Him this morning. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe You. Lord Jesus, I trust in your blood to cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness and from all of my sin. I surrender my life to you this morning. I confess you as Lord. I'm no longer in control of my life. I don't hold on to any of this anymore. I'm laying it down. I'm giving it to you, Lord Jesus. I put my trust in you and I want to live my life for the glory of your name. And I ask it in Jesus' name.